I'm a full-time Eternity Bible College student. I live with um, all classmates, guys that either just started or had been here when I first started or friends I've come to know since I've been here. And so we five guys live in a two-bedroom apartment. So this is my community. This is everyone I live around, my neighbors all around me. Very close areas, awesome for meeting people. Over there we have the pool, which hopefully will be open soon because that'd be a great opportunity just to go chill and meet some people. Right below there we have uh, two picnic tables and that's where a lot of people like to hang out at night up until 10 o'clock. And I've had some amazing conversations just getting to know people. Uh, just sit out there and spend a couple hours talking about life and hardships and seeing where they're at. It's been a real blessing from God to have that so close to my apartment. But it's really been a process of prayer. We've gotten guys together uh, at different occasions and just tried to pray through uh, names and people that we know in our community and just doors to be opened. And slowly through time, they've begun to open. A group of high school kids would consistently be sitting at the picnic table. And I just decided I'm just going to go and see where they are. Just strike up a conversation and get to know them. And it turns out like they're really cool kids. Um, I enjoy hanging out with them, I try to meet them like every day. <laughs> Go and knock on the door for the people that live beside us and they were a little shocked. I mean, they didn't even respond negatively, but they were shocked. We've lived here for a year and a half and suddenly we're just knocking on their door and asking to get to know them and ask them over for dinner. Basically being a missionary, like if you were a missionary in a different country living where you are now, would they pull you out and say, no, you're not being effective? I'm used to being in a Christian bubble. And it's really been a struggle to get outside of that. It's really been a struggle to talk to people that I might not necessarily have a lot in common with. And so it's getting over my own fears and getting into the lives of other people, knowing that the gospel is much more important than my comfort. People aren't scary. Like They actually want to know who God is a lot of the time. And they're excited that you came and talked to them. So currently I'm just living every day uh, being a missionary in my own community and I'll see where God takes me. Hey guys doing? Um, now I know it is April 1st and uh, Todd told me that something was put up on the stage that I should open up because you guys wanted to see it and I told him no and he said to go ahead and do it anyway so I'm going to be submissive. Um, What in the world? I'm going to fight it. It's go time. It's on. That's clever. You guys are awesome. My daughter will be happy. You, you probably don't want me to take it, but I'm going to. Um, it may make it home. It may not. I don't know. We'll see. See how tonight goes. So good to be back again. I just um, I know it's my last night that I get a chance to speak, and um, I just wanted to say just thank you. You guys have been ridiculously hospitable. Um, really have demonstrated the love of Christ to, to us. And uh, just it's been amazing to, to just watch your community. You know, the cool thing about going and speaking at a church and sort of being part of a church for a little while is you get a chance to see how they interact with one another. And I think it was unanimous. I mean, we're just, I know Abby said yesterday, she was just watching you guys, and she's like, they're amazing. 
And I just wanted to tell you that. Like, uh, you guys are amazing. And it, we know it's by God's grace. And uh, I just want you to know that it's, that it's seen, it's sensed, and, uh, and we felt your guys' hospitality and, in many ways. And so thank you. Thank you so much. I, um, I'm a little reticent tonight, you know, with my studded shirt and my mic on. I feel a little bit like, like uh, Britney Spears, so... <laughs> It's my fighting gear. I'd like to say Justin Timberlake, but I am definitely not bringing sexy back. That's for dang sure. There's nothing about me bringing sexy back. Um, I also wanted to, uh, I wanted to just give God uh, glory. Uh, I'm not, um, in Acts 29, we're, we're a reformed charismatic network. And uh, what that means exactly, I'm not sure. But it means that we believe that the Holy Spirit is powerful and is at work. And within the Reform Network, I am the guy that is a charismatic with his seatbelt on, with an airbag, and with anti-lock brakes. So, charismatic, but they've appointed me as the charismatic who's super safe. Well, yesterday, before I came up, I was actually nauseous because I had a migraine. I'm, I'm hypoglycemic, and I, I didn't eat all day yesterday, and I, I ate way too late, and so... I'm getting ready to come up. I called my wife right before I came over here, and I was just, I mean, it was, you know, when you get those migraines, you just, you can't even, you just want to shut the blinds and put a towel over your head and, and go to sleep, and it happened, like, right before I got here. So I get here, and, and uh, my daughter's praying for me. My wife is praying for me. Tim and Abby are praying for me. The elders, the leaders are praying for me, and I kid you not, I got up here. I walked up to the stage, turned around, and the lights were really b- bright. I don't know if you remember, like, yesterday at first, I was kind of doing one of these. As soon as I opened my mouth to speak, gone immediately, like, and gone all night. So it's just weird, like, seriously, like, it's just, that's just amazing, you know, a guy with, I I think what I told Todd was, I removed the anti-lock brakes, so we're getting closer, but uh, God is really good, and I wanted to give give him all the glory. Um, We're going to be working off of what we've discussed the last few days, um, and I thought it would be good for us to kind of... To, to continue to add clarity to uh, the beauty of what we've been discussing and calling each other to since Sunday. And the truth is, you can see something as beautiful and still have it not be all that clear. For instance, I, I really love classical music, but I don't understand it at all. I don't understand the nuance and the intricacies. It's just not clear to me. I don't understand its foundation. I don't understand its underpinnings. I don't understand its history. I don't understand the various composers and the difference. Matter of fact, when I listen to classical music, I just sort of put it all in a big category in a box in my head called classical music. And I can't tell you the difference between the various composers, but I know I like it. And it's interesting because if you meet somebody that really likes classical music or any work of art and they begin to talk with you about that piece of art, doesn't it just make you appreciate even more the beauty that you're enjoying. Like you go, wow, I didn't know that. Um, that's, that's amazing. It doesn't make it less rich or less beautiful. It actually makes it more beautiful. And I think what we've been doing over the last few days is we've been holding up portraits for you of God's beauty found in the gospel and in community and on mission. And, uh, and what I've been trying to do the last couple of nights is to just try to get some foundational underpinnings so that, not that it makes uh, these works of art, these uh, pieces of beauty that we've been showing you less attractive because we're having to think it through and grapple through the text or work through the theological reasoning for it, but that it would actually make it more beautiful so that you would enjoy it more. And we know this to be true about God, right? I mean, we were ca- our hearts were captured when we saw the beauty of Christ in the gospel. And so we, we trusted in him. 
But as we come closer to Christ and to understand him more, and the more God opens our hearts and our understanding to learn who Christ is, he doesn't become less beautiful to us. He becomes more beautiful to us. And you realize the more that you understand who he is, the more beauty that you have to enjoy. And it just, it's just a principle that's true. And so um, like last night being sort of the foundation of discussing a gospel, not in sort of an ethereal kind of catchword, but actually what it is. I want to do that tonight as we continue on this sort of theme of a three-legged stool. I want to talk about community and I want to talk about mission. And so we're going to sort of run in that vein. I'll hit uh, community first and then I'll hit mission next. Let's pray. If you want to right now, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Titus 2. We're going to work from Titus 2. And then uh, once you're there, I'll pray and we'll get rolling. And I'll try not to fight the hamster up here. My hope is that when you leave here from these last few weeks, you don't just leave simply saying that we should understand the gospel or we should be in community or that we should be on mission. But I want you to say, I know why. And speak that truth to your own heart and understanding and speak it to others. That's where we're going to take the time uh, tonight doing what we're doing. So uh, we'll be in Titus 2. Let's pray. We'll ask for God's favor. Lord, we thank you so very much. You're really good to us. Uh, And you demonstrated how good you are to us uh, most clearly upon the cross. And it is on that cross that we see both your righteousness and your holiness and your grace and your mercy. Where truth and grace collide. And Lord, we, uh, we just confess that We need to be a people that live in the shadow of the cross constantly. Father, we often turn our face from the cross because it can be agonizing to look at. And I think it's just because we forget that truth and and grace collided there. So, Lord, for those of us that are maybe just struggling with all that we've taken in these last few days, I pray that you would continue to remind us, even this evening, that our foundation, that our hope, that our security that our purpose, all that we are can be summed up in the beauty of the gospel. And uh, so, Lord, we just ask that you'd remind us of that tonight, uh, that you'd help us to understand it better, that we'd be able to speak it to one another, and that we would trust you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, just have your way with us. Just have your way with these people. Uh, Use uh, just uh, a finite vessel like myself to bring the truth you desire for them to hear. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, I'm going to answer really two questions. The one we answered yesterday, which was, why is the gospel such a big deal? And tonight we're going to be asking, why is community such a big deal and why is mission such a big deal? So, the first thing we want to talk, is, talk about is, why is community such a big deal? And I'll just, I, I want to lay these out in kind of a way that you can either write down notes or, no, this is a little bit more teaching than it is preaching, but... I'm not a good teacher. I'm definitely more of a preacher. So I'm going to do the best I can to make it clear and concise. But I want you to be able to write it down. So uh, heading number one, okay, if I'm being a good Southern Baptist preacher, of which I'm not, heading number one is why is community such a big deal? And the two answers are, number one, first, it's our identity. And secondly, it's what God intended from the beginning for his people. So if you're there in Titus 2, let me just read Titus 2, 11 through 14. 
This is what God's word says. It's a great passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's a beautiful passage. Let me ask you a question. Is it the law of God that appeared and brought salvation to all people in this passage? Is it the law of God that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Is it the law of God that causes us to live self-controlled, godly lives in our time and makes us excited for good works? No, of course it's not. It says it's the grace of God that teaches us to renounce these various sins and selfishness. It is the grace of God that brought salvation to us. And grace teaches us to live godly lives. Most of us don't quite understand that. I struggle with that myself because it's so easily easy to rely upon principles and to rely upon law as a sort of checklist of things to do. But to believe that it is the grace of God that teaches us to live godly lives and to be zealous for good works in this present age just sort of sounds out of place. In other words, what it's saying it's, is it's the gospel because it's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel that teaches us to love God and desire to obey him. And this is why we spoke so much about the gospel last night. It is everything to us. Really, what's everything to us is the content of that gospel, right? We don't love the gospel as like a propositional statement. We love the gospel that teaches us and tells us about the good news of its content. The grace of God is what teaches us, not the law. And so the first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about community being in our identity. If you look at verse 14, it says that our great God and Savior, Jesus the Christ, we talk about that, Jesus the Messiah, that our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, gave himself for us to redeem us from all law-breaking and sin and to make us pure for himself as a people for his own possession, as a people, plural, as a people for his own possession who are really motivated and excited for good works. That's what it's saying. He gave himself for us that we would be a people for his own possession. Not simply a person, but a people. And this doesn't mean that we're not individual people. It simply means we're saved as a people. And this people group is made up of individuals. But we no longer identify ourselves as individuals. We see ourselves now as a people. And, and we're called into this and we come into this fellowship with Jesus Christ as a people. We're not saved individually. And then choose to join a local church like a club or a support group. Instead, Christ died for his people and we're saved when we trust in him and become that people. I'm going to repeat myself a lot tonight because I'm hoping that you'll get the theme of we're a people. Matter of fact, um, it's beautiful. John Stott says this. It's a great, it's a, he's an English pastor, was an English pastor. He's a great man of God. He says this. He says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community 
For his purpose, conceived in eternity past, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in future eternity. It's not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. Jesus didn't die and marry a billion brides. Right? He died for one. We are his bride. We're his bride. A people. And because of that, we have to fundamentally change our identity, how we see ourselves. And I'm using, if you'll notice, church and community kind of synonymously because it's really the same thing. We confuse church and community. We typically think of church as that which we do on Sunday. And we, we have to protect our language. And we, we began, when we started a transition in our church, we began to really be mindful of the way that we spoke. And we say things often, if you come to Kaleo, we'll say things like, you know, if I'm up preaching, I'll say, my name's David, I'm one of the elders of the church. We're really glad that you've came to visit. If this is your first time to church or your first time at Kaleo, we pray it's the last time you ever go to church. And that you would be welcomed into the life of God's people as the church. And we think of church in such ways that we use language like, I'm going to church. Not really. When you go into the place where the church is meeting, you're not really going to church. Church is in the building. And church isn't church just because someone's speaking. Church is the body of God's people and a family. Two prevailing metaphors. His people come together round the sun. That's what the church is. Now, there are various components the way the church is. It grows in grace through the preaching of the word, through the giving and partaking of communion, through baptism, the sacraments. And, and that's all true. Definitely means of grace. And we want to exercise those. And we're not saying, hey, let's just all of a sudden get together in a coffee shop and Let's just have, you know, great tea together and talk about how awesome it is to be the church. Like, we're not saying, like, diminish the view of the people of God by acting as if none of these things are important. That's exactly the opposite of what we're saying. We're just simply saying we've got to rethink who we are and therefore speak again the truth of who we are as a people and start to use language that's appropriate to our identity, which is as a people. The problem is we define ourselves so much Merely as individuals, don't we? So much of how we define ourselves is as individuals. When we ask questions like, who am I? We immediately start to think and then rattle off various interests that we have. I'm a person that likes this. I'm a person that does that. I'm a person that... That's how we see ourselves. And it's hard for us to identify ourselves in relational terms. You see, the fact is, my identity is built around the truth that I am a husband, I'm a father... I'm a pastor and I'm a child of God. This means that my identity is shaped by my relationships. I'm not autonomous. I'm not a loner. I'm not merely an individual and nothing more. I am a child of God. And to be a child of God means that I'm part of a family. That's what it means. It's who I am. Any of you only children? Only kids? Come on, raise your hand. If you're an only child, raise your hand. There you go. What do we say about only children? selfish. And was that you, the only child saying it? You're an honest, godly woman. Now we say only children can be a little spoiled and a little selfish. And why do we say that? 
Because what? Oh, they don't have to share. They don't have siblings. Hmm. You realize that when you were saved into a family, it was a family, right? Like you're not the special spoiled child that is like all on your own, just you and Jesus on your own. I'm so glad he's my daddy. Just Jesus and I holding hands. No, you're saved into a family. And the problem is when we don't see our identity as being in a family, as part of a family, being a child of God, set in the context of his people as a family and body, a lot of the, you know, many of the similar traits that come out from only children in just familial relationships becomes very similar in the context of the body of Christ. We become a little bit selfish. We become a little bit spoiled. Now, I, w- I would say, I would venture a guess, because this is what my heart struggles with, I would say that I would like it if I were an only child. God's only child. All the attention going right to me. All the gifts, all the blessings. Not have to put up with my siblings. Don't have to share with them. They're not going to make me mad. You know, my older brother isn't going to say, pull my finger. Like, none of that, right? Like, <laughs> just by myself with Papa. That would be sweet. Not really. Because the characteristics that it creates is unhealthy and ungodly. Sounds crazy to say that we're not autonomous, but part of a family. It's crazy to say that I cannot be who God intended me to be without regard to other people. It's crazy to say, in other words, I am who I am because God defines who I am, a person in community. I am who I am because God defines who I am, which is a person in community. And it's just nuts. Like, our Western worldview screams at us to have it our own way, to think of ourselves, to do whatever makes us happy. And this message of our identity being defined communally rather than individually, is it's just not pleasant. I mean, it sounds communist, doesn't it? Wait a minute, what about me? What about my individuality? But see, here's the problem. Communism loses respect for the individual for the sake of the community. But what we've done in our culture, in the Western world, is we've lost respect for the community for the sake of the individual. Everything's up to the individual rights of a person, so much so that justice could be trumped because of an individual's rights. I mean, like, there's some flaws there. I'm not saying it's all bad, and I'm not saying it's all right. I'm just saying let's be careful. And, and what we're not saying is that we're just asking you to be part of a people, that God's calling you to be part of a people, and therefore just sort of blend into the fabric of everyone else and therefore lose any distinction that makes you who you are. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the beauty of seeing yourself as a people, as a communal people of God, as a family, is that it highlights and respects your individuality. Because what we know and what we believe about the family of God is the family of God is made up of individuals who come together and are not only in union with Christ, but also in communion with one another. And every single person we love and cherish and respect and need, they're uniquely wired. They have specific gifts and personalities that God has given to them that we're desperate for in the community. We love that person, their individuality, but... To see ourselves only as that individual person is very dangerous and actually does damage to the church. Um, I I use this uh, example often uh, in our own church. Uh, But when we we look at the way we build and construct walls today, um, it's, uh, I mean, it's safe. We make walls. They're all the same brick, same size. And we use cement or mortar, whatever we use. And we, we stack them accordingly. Any bricklayers here? Okay, good, because I don't know what I'm talking about. All right, we stack them 
you know, appropriately and they're fit in together, they're all the same, and you can actually remove a brick or two and not really lose the structural integrity of the wall. I've been spending a lot of time in England this last um, couple years, and uh, I've been in Sheffield, and we got to a place called Peat District, which is just this old, I mean, it's just beautiful, beautiful houses, old homes. And Peat District has also um, got these walls as you're driving along the road that are about a 1,000 years old. They're about yay high, about a thousand years old, and just, uh, they're, they're basically boundary markers for property. And they've been there for about a thousand years. And these boundary markers for property were just built by the hands of men and women that were laboring to put them together. But it's just this incredible craftsmanship, because what they do is they take all of these weird stones that don't have the same shape, and they find a way to fit them all in like a puzzle. It's amazing. But you know the difference between the way they build and the way we build, you take out one of the stones and the integrity of the wall is compromised. The structural integrity is compromised. And I think we see ourselves as individuals. Individuality to us is more important. And really what we do is we see ourselves as just bricks that can be taken out of community and it doesn't really affect the structural integrity of the wall. And what I'm saying is, I don't think that's what God intended. We are all created differently, gifted differently. We have a specific shape to us. And and we belong in a specific place that the Lord intends for the wall, right? For his people, for the temple, all fit together to the chief cornerstone. And, And the truth is, if Christian community is the body of Christ, we shouldn't be living as disembodied Christians. Community shouldn't be seen as something we'll get to when we're not busy. I mean, if it's our identity, then it's our priority. Our culture teaches us that we're individuals on our own, juggling all of life's responsibilities, all of these various things that we're supposed to be doing. And as we're juggling, the more that we have to juggle, the hope for us that we're told Uh, by those that like to help us with planning our schedules, you know, the book Get Things Done and Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the great hope for us is balance. Like like we're a dude in tights with his undie on the outside of his pants doing one of the... You guys never seen those guys? I'm old, okay? That's what they used to wear, tights and then undies on the outside of their pants like superheroes. I always thought it was funny. All right, they're walking a a tight wire and they're juggling, right? And that's sort of what our life is like. We have all these priorities where I'm at the center and I'm juggling everything. And our great hope is balance. I mean, that's like nice if you're an Eastern mystic. Like if you're into yin-yang. But that's not Christianity. And that's not Christian community. Matter of fact, the way that God describes me is that I am a person in community. And therefore, what is the central hub by which all other responsibilities as spokes connect to is God's family, the church. The community of God's people is the central hub. And because I'm a father and husband, then I am a family within a family. I have my own family, the Fairchilds, that are in the family, the church, and that is central to my identity. And that is central to what I do and who I am. And therefore, when I make decisions, we're to make decisions as a people with that as the center. Isn't it frustrating When all of the things that we're juggling begin to fall apart and church becomes one of those many things, one of those many balls that we just drop. Doesn't that just drive you crazy? Like, doesn't it frustrate you 
You're like, I just don't have time. I don't have time to be around God's people. I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to serve because I have all these other things going on. But I'm just asking you the question, like, who told you you had to have all those other things going on? Have we stopped to think why we're doing what we're doing? If this is true, that you're saved into a community, that you're a person in community, and that is, that's who you are then it it should raise the question of why have I come to believe an alternate story? Because if my schedule and my life is such that it doesn't allow me to be what God intended as a community of his people, then maybe I've got to ask a question of why in the world have I believed that story? Why has that narrative become my gospel? Why have I believed that it's not good news, it's bad news? And why have I given myself to it without question? I mean, so many of us are making decisions. If If you're under 25 or... You know, under 21, some of you are in high school or you're getting into college and you're thinking through, like, what do I do? And you've been, may have even been told this by your parents that you, what you want to do is you want to get good grades in high school. Why? To go to college. And you're going to get good grades in college. What are you going to college for, by the way? To get a good job. So you've got to get good grades in college so that it looks good on your resume so that you can get a job. And then you want to get a good job. Why? To make money. And you want to make good money. Why? To do what? All kinds of stuff, right? Find a woman, you know? <laughs> Buy a house. All kinds of stuff. And you want to do that, why? Because everybody else is doing it? Because it's awesome? You see my point? So many of us got good grades so that we could get into college so that we could get a job, so that we can make money to live our life for something completely other than what God has called us to. It's just, it's heartbreaking. But to be honest, like, most of us are working jobs that we don't like to make money we probably don't need to impress people we don't even know and to acquire things that's just junk. All for the sake of our individuality. Maybe it's just time to rethink that. Maybe it's just time to say, you know what? I don't have to do this. I'm not saying like, you know, Pastor David said, everybody go quit your jobs. Like, that's not what I'm saying. You're all showing up in my house. Help me, you know. <laughs> not saying that. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that. I've got a hamster to feed. I don't know what I do with you. <laughs> I'm just saying it's good to ask those questions. And if you continue to just sort of float along without asking those questions, um, you're going to live a wasted life. And I just, we just don't want you to waste your life. You get one life to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's it. You get one life. You get one life to suffer for the cause of Christ. John Piper uh, Piper talks about uh, people that they retire and then they buy the Winnebago and then they decide they're going to travel all over the country and they spend their savings and all their last money and their glory years, they think it's their glory years, to buy this ridiculously expensive driving house. And he uses the example of a couple that drives around to all the beaches of the United States, visiting every beach. And at the end of their days, they collect shells at every beach. And at the, at the, end, of the, day, at, at the end of their days, when they stand before the living Christ, what are they going to say? Jesus, look at my shell collection. Like, 
it's going to be like, wow, you are a bonehead. Like, you just like, <laughs> just didn't get that, did you? Like, la, la, la. That's what you were doing the whole time. Like, it would, what Dr. Piper says, I think is true, is he's like, why don't you take that money? And instead of spending $65,000 to buy a Winnebago you don't really need, why don't you buy a couple of plane tickets to Sudan and give yourself away for the cause of the gospel? Like that's. And then he said something else in that same speech. He said, um, and if you re- refuse to heed the call, you're asinine. It's like, John said that? Yes, he did. So I can say it too. There you go. <laughs> Dr. Piper said asinine. I can say it. He's right. Living a wasted life because we haven't asked fundamental questions because we don't see ourselves as a people in community and we don't understand the nature of the church. We don't understand what Christ saved us into, not just from. That's a problem. So many of us can define what God saved us from, but we have no idea what God saved us to. And a majority of our evangelical questions go something like this. What are you going to do if you die tomorrow? Where would you go? Right? Isn't that what we ask people? God doesn't guarantee us any days. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed a man wants to die, and after this comes judgment. You will stand before the living God. Right? Like, I mean, that's maybe how I did it, but... You don't have to do it that way. We ask that question. And we have various responses. I'm not saying it's a bad question. It's a great question. It's a good question. But how about we start asking as the community of God's people, as the family of God, as the body of Christ, what happens if you wake up tomorrow? It's a good question. What happens if the living Christ sustains you for the next 40 years? Then what, right? What are you going to do? You're going to wake up tomorrow having life and breath because of God's grace. Your heart beating because Christ is keeping it beating. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? You're the people of God. You're a person's in community. How do you respond now? It's a good question to ask, ask yourself. And um, I want to say one more thing about this idea of being persons in community, and this is going to hurt, so I'm just sort of preparing you. So, gentlemen, put on a cup, because it's going to sting a little bit. <laughs> Here's my question. John Piper didn't say that. He didn't say that. No, didn't say that. no sir. No. No. No, he didn't say that. He said. He said something about the cup of suffering. I don't think he was talking about the same thing. Didn't say that. All right. Here's my question. If we are a community that belongs to one another, and we do belong to one another, when was the last time you made a decision for your life? within the context of your community, and you actually heeded that counsel. A significant decision that you submitted to your community, and then when they came up with an answer, you said, okay. And this doesn't mean that we're making decisions for people. It simply means that because we belong to one another, that we make decisions with regards to each other, with regards to the community. That if my life is not my own and I've been bought with a price and I've been saved into the people of God, into the family of God, into the body of Christ, then I'm no longer by myself. And every decision I make make 
affects other members of the family. Do you make decisions like that? And doesn't that just freak you out? It got real quiet. Like I, that just sounds nutty. Right? Like that to me sounds like we are one step away from black Nikes and Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> the weird-looking wife of the charismatic leader who comes over with donuts. Have some donuts, you know. Arsenic lace. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Doesn't that sound crazy? Like if you believe that you are a people together and that the decisions that you make, that the church is not just one of many balls that you're juggling, but actually it's the hub of who you are. And so therefore all other decisions have to be made within consultation of God's people for the sake of the church because the decision you make will affect them. Where am I going to move? I need to talk to God's people. What house am I going to get? Do I need it? I don't know. I need to talk to God's people. Do I need this car? I don't know. Do I need this car or this car? I don't know. Do I need a car? Should I take this job? Should I move away from my community? Should I chase the American? Thank you. No. Should I chase the American dream and I can't afford Southern California, so I'm going to, you know, go to the hills of Arkansas and make moonshine or something, whatever they do there. <laughs> Marry my cousin, right? I'm sorry. That's just me. You guys are the one that put up the hamster, so let's get you back. It just sounds weird. It just sounds odd. It just sounds out of place to give your life up for the sake of others, doesn't it? It just sounds out of Does it sound familiar? Where else do we see that? Where else do we see giving ourselves up for the sake of others? We want to walk in step with the gospel, right? We want to show it off by the way that we live our life and make decisions. And, and this is just one of the ways. I'm not saying this is the way. It's just one of the ways that we can do it. And it's not just that our, it is our identity, but God intended community for us from the very beginning. I mean, this is sort of like number two under this, but community is what God always intended for his people from the beginning. See, more importantly, we're made to be communal creatures that image what God is like to one another and to this world. Let me say that again. We're made to be communal creatures that image what God is like to one another and to this world. And when God created us in the garden, what's the only thing prior to the fall that he said was not good? The man would be alone. Men, do I get an amen? Men go, yes, bad, bad be alone. Bad. No, no good. Right? The man should be alone. Why? Because in order to appropriately image God, we have to show that we are a community like him. He is a triune God in triune community. He's a father because he has a son. And the father and son are not only in relationship to each other, but they're in relationship with the spirit. And in this great coalescence of joy, glory, love, and community, God creates us in his image. God makes us to be a man and woman to share his joy, his glory, his love, and community. He doesn't make us because he needs us. He makes us to share what he already has that already flows effortlessly within the Trinity. And the Father, Son, and Spirit pour out love and glory in joyful community for all eternity. And God makes us to share in that Trinitarian joy and community. And the way he did this is by making us 
community like him. He wants us to share, to pour out our love, our joy, and his glory to each other in community as we share lives together around him. When God rescues the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, he brings them to himself to make him his what? His people. Not his individual persons all gathered together. His people. He gives them the law so that they might treat each other with a standard of relationship that is like the God that they love and serve. When we come to the New Testament, we hear the word fellowship a number of times. Anybody that likes Greek, everybody should know this word. Like, what is the Greek word for fellowship? Come on, brother, preach it. Yeah, absolutely. Koinonia. But unfortunately for us, it's sort of like Melba toast now. Fellowship sounds bland. You know what koinonia is? It's a joining together of three words. Common, sharing, participation. We want koinonia. Okay. That's common, sharing, participation. How do we do this as individuals? Making decisions with regards to our life purely on our own. How are we having things in common, sharing all things and participating to one another, with one another in relationship? 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, we're a community of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says that we are in community with the Son. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 says we're sharing our lives. Acts 4, 32 says, teaches and describes that they were sharing their property. Philippians 1, 5 and Philemon 6 says that they were sharing the gospel. And 2 Corinthians 1, 6 and 7 says that we are also sharing in Christ's suffering and glory. We are to be a people that share in community and participation around Christ, our Messiah. Okay, I hope that's convincing enough. We've been hearing a lot about community. I wanted to lay some of the reasoning for it. So the second thing is, why is mission such a big deal? Right? So heading number two, why is mission such a big deal? Three things. He saves us as a people for his glory. He saves us as a people for our good. And he saves us as a people to make him known. So his plan was not simply to create a community and then stop. This community has a purpose to it. And since God creates all things for a purpose, it means that gospel community also has a purpose. And the first purpose is that God saves us as a people, as a people for his glory. We this is foundation. We cannot ever miss this. God saves us as a people for his glory. God does all things for his own glory. He is supremely satisfied and motivated by his own glory. There is nothing that makes him happier than his glory because it's what's most beautiful in all the universe. And we treasure what we find pleasure in. Well, since God finds infinite pleasure in his own glory, he treasures it. And since we're created as his own treasured possession, which, by the way, is plural, since it's speaking about the people of God, since we are created as his own treasured possession, we should stop and ask, how in the world is it possible that God would treasure us, such broken people? God treasures that which he finds most pleasure in. How can it be? He would treasure people like you and I. And it's for one simple reason. He created us for his glory, and his glory is accomplished by saving sinners to himself so that they can be what they were created for, glory bearers of the living God. 
He doesn't just remove our sin because he had nothing better to do. He was motivated by his own glory to remove our sin. Don't you see? He was motivated by his own glory to remove our sin. How do we know this? Because we're told that we're made for his glory in Isaiah 43, 7. And the most basic definition of sin in the Bible is Romans 1, 23. That says that sin is the exchanging of the glory of God for some idol, some other thing. In other words, sin is defined as treasuring something more than we treasure his beauty. And if this is true, then God saved us from our sin so that we would no longer glory in something other than him. He wants us to be, he wants to be our treasure. He wants to be our greatest joy and our greatest pleasure. And this pleasure, as Piper says, this pleasure is the measure of what we treasure. Bottom line. We see what we treasure by how much pleasure we take in it. So why did God save us? He saved us for his glory, that we would love most what he loves most, that we would treasure most what he treasures most, that we would find our greatest pleasure in what he finds his greatest pleasure in, his own glory. Does this sound crazy? He seems really God-centered, doesn't he? We don't want to say self-centered because, like, that's bad. To us, it's terrible. Did someone, I mean, is it like, does he, is he like this like 16 year old with his voice cracking and like his braces got tightened too tight that week and he's all upset and like mad and like, you praise me. You know, is that what he's doing? No, of course not. I mean, for you and I to, to need such glory is, is a character flaw. We, we can't stand the person that constantly needs praise and affirmation, that constantly needs glory. Why? Because we all know we're broken sinners and nobody deserves that kind of glory. And the only one that does is God himself. And if God were to find his pleasure and satisfaction and joy and delight in any other beauty than his own glory, he would be an idolater by definition. By his own definition, Romans one twenty three, he will have exchanged his own glory for something else that is more supreme to him. And that's what's weird. To love the glory of God is to glorify God. Like, to love Him, to put our affection on Him, to be satisfied in Him, to find our pleasure in Him, is to glorify Him. And for Him to be glorified is to create a people that supremely love Him and treasure Him over anything else. He didn't save you just so you could have a comfortable life. He saved you for His glory. Like, that's a trip, if you think about it. Like, we think that salvation came to us just because it was great and he, like, saved us and now we're in and that's cool. But he actually removed what was keeping you from being able to glorify him, so now you can. And he wants you to glorify him by being a people together that find him as your greatest treasure collectively. Individually, yes. Collectively. Secondly, he saves us as a people for our own Good. He saves us as a people for our own God. Good. God saves us as a people for our own good. He wants us to be a community together to experience the riches of his grace and to just stand and marvel at his beauty. And I want you to just think about that for a second. Do you believe that God saves us as a people for our own good? Or just to like make our life miserable? Like I like being saved. But I don't like being saved as a people because people are annoying. They bother me. 
I'm not sure it's for my own good. Uh, when I'm around people, you need to put away sharp objects. They don't make me happy, right? I mean, so many of us see people and being saved in community, and the idea of community and the idea of body as being something that's like burdensome and hard and so difficult. And no doubt it is hard. No doubt it is challenging. Because it's for our own good. Because it's for our good. Because God is committed to our holiness and join Him. And what people have a tendency to do is bring out things in us that would normally not have been brought out were it not for the fact that we were in relationship with them. Right? It's for good. Do you, you know why God gives us all these incredible one-anothering passages in the New Testament? I mean, just scandalous Alelon passages. This one-anothering. There's like a 58 of them, these imperatives of what we're to be doing with one another. I mean, if you just trace them, like do a word study of Olelon or just one anothering in the New Testament and just unpack all of them. And you begin to look at that and you, I mean, it's just stunning. Like all the things that we are to do and be for one another. And that this is the way that he chooses to love us is by sending the spirit of the living Christ into the body of his people so that his people might love one another in the name of Christ. And we sense the love of Christ from one another. Let me, let me read some of them to you. Just tell me what you think about a community that would look like this and tell me whether or not you think this is for your good or for your bad. Love one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. Be members of one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build one another up. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Care for one another. Serve one another in love. Don't provoke or envy one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Abound in love towards one another. Comfort one another. Don't hate one another. But encourage one another. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Don't slander one another. Confess your sins to one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Greet one another. Fellowship with one another. Love one another and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What would a community look like if it believed that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how beautiful that would be? How gorgeous that would be? Is, do you think that's for your good or do you think that's for your ill? What would that look like? Is that, is that stunning to you? So it's not just like he just wants a people, but he wants a people that the way that he, the way that we treat one another flows out of who he is and is relying upon his grace. And that the mark of a people would be that they would look like this. I, I think it's amazing, but I mean, it does beg the question, how in the world would you do this? 
how in the world do you create a community like this? What creates a community like this? What have you been learning the last few days? What is the only thing that could possibly create a community like this? Thank you. Praise God. That's the only thing that could create a community like this. Let's work this out. Let's do an experiment, okay? Jump in on this, please. Okay, so let me, let me we can pick some of these. All right. Um, Romans 15, 7. You don't have to turn there. Accept one another. It's hard to accept one another at times, isn't it? It can be really challenging, especially if the person kind of gets under your skin and they annoy you. Um, maybe you've had some past grievances and it's just, uh, you've forgiven them, but it's, it's very tense. And so it's just hard to, to accept them. How do you accept one another? What is going to be the only way that you'll be able to do that? Through Christ. Good. Now let's apply that. That's exactly right. Forgive. Yes, but let's stick with accepting one another. Let, let me tell you what, I'm, I'm trapping you, so I'll just, it won't be April Fool's, I'll just be honest with you with what I'm doing. Okay. It's because it'll be a long night if not. Um, the only way that we're able to accept one another is by believing that the Father has accepted us. And to the degree that you believe that the Father has accepted you through the death of His own Son, you will accept one another. If you're not accepting one another, it's because you haven't really believed or are not believing You've been accepted purely by grace. How do you love one another? Say again? Through Christ's love. Specifically, why though? That's right. That's what John 13, 34 says, 35 says, right? Love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples. It's a missional issue. It's showing the world something. It's showing them specifically that you're followers of Jesus. And the way that you're going to love one another is because you know that I've loved you. You love one another to the degree that you know that I love you. If you know that I loved you and you know how I've loved you, then you will love one another. If you don't love one another, you don't understand how I've loved you. You're not connecting the gospel. You're not believing the gospel. You've forgotten the gospel. I mean, this is what Paul did to Peter in Galatians 2. When Peter withdrew because some of James' boys rolled into town from Jerusalem, Peter's sitting at the table kind of chilling and kicking it with these Gentiles, probably had better food, you know, probably just completely relaxed. You know, they had boba and sushi and all kinds of cool stuff, like eating up a storm, having a great time. He didn't have to be all freaked out about how he washes, probably all dirty, you know, and he's sitting there chowing with some Gentiles and then rolls James' boys. Peter gets a little freaked out and he... The, the context is he quietly sort of slowly recedes from them. What, is, what does Paul do? He opens a gospel can. <laughs> Just does. He says, you are not walking orthopedeo. You are not walking in step with the gospel. Look, if it is the grace of God that teaches us to be selfless, what Peter didn't need is more law. Like Paul could have easily said to him, dude, you know, I mean, didn't you get this like in Acts? Do you remember like when Acts was being, no, you don't remember. Okay, Acts was being written. And you remember the whole Cornelius thing? Like, do you remember that? Like the whole thing being unrolled and you get to eat like lobster now and you're so stoked and happy. You went out and got a cracker and some butter and you're like, yeah. 
You went to go see Cornelius. You remember like in God's grace was going out to them. Do you remember that? Do you remember? Did you, did you forget? Did you forget that God accepts by grace? Did you forget the gospel? You're not walking in step with the gospel. You've forgotten the gospel. If all Paul would have done would have been, you broke the no racism rule. It would not have helped Peter. There's no power in that. Because now Peter would have been completely jacked. He's afraid of James and he's afraid of Paul. He would have been completely motivated by more fear. Who does he please? Do I please James from a reputation for him? Or do I please Paul from a reputation for him? Motivation by fear. Instead, Paul does something brilliant. He says, you're not walking in step with the gospel. What that means is, you have forgotten that you've been saved by grace. And you need to be reminded by that. You need to be reminded of the gospel. You need to be reminded of grace. That's what's going to help you not be racist, is the fact that you know that you are such a wretch and deserve nothing but God's disfavor. And he gave you his son. Don't you remember, Peter? He gave you his son. Peter, do you remember when you, when you, when you betrayed him? Do you remember when you denied him, Peter? Do you remember when you said, I'll never do that ever? And when the time came, you walked away in your best friend's greatest hour of need. Do you remember that, Peter? And what did, remember what Jesus said to you? Remember when he said to you, look, Satan has come to ask for you by name. He's been sifting you like wheat. And when you're restored, go encourage the brethren. Do you remember then he died for you? Do you remember when he went to the cross? Do you remember how you were afraid to look at that cross? Do you remember what the cross was all about? It was about your sin and denial. It was your sin that put him there. I mean, Peter, do you remember that it was, it just as much have been, should have been you standing with the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Do you remember that? Do you remember the great sacrifice he made for you, Peter? Don't you remember that he accepts by grace, not by law? Do you remember, Peter, do you remember that? Then walk in step with it. Then walk in step with it. Walk in step with it. The truth of the gospel. That's what Christ is calling us to by one anothering. It's not calling us to a law in community. He's calling us to a need of grace. Let's try one more. All right, let's see here. We'll try a couple more. Pass judgment on one another. Why not? Where else was judgment passed for you? On his son, so that you would be considered not guilty. Therefore, don't pass judgment on one another. Care for one another? How could you possibly care for one another when you feel so uncaring? Did someone care for you? Then, to the degree that you believe that Christ cares for you. To that same degree, you'll care for someone else. Are you you struggling with a lack of mercy for others? Do you believe that God granted you mercy through his son? That to the degree that you believe that he's given you mercy, to that same degree, you'll be merciful to, to one another. Do you believe that God's given you grace? Are you struggling with grace, giving grace to people? Do you believe that God's given it to you? Then to that degree that you believe that God's given you that grace, to that same degree, you'll give grace to others. Listen. Do you believe that God's forgiven you in Christ of all of your sin? Are you struggling with forgiveness? And you've forgotten 
That because Christ has forgiven you, you can forgive others. And to the degree that you believe that, to the the degree that you really believe the forgiveness of Christ, you're going to forgive other people. You forget it, you won't. So let's just make sure as we're forming communities that the basis of our motivation to one another is the gospel and its grace. Without it, no one can bear it up. With it, we're going to rely upon grace a lot, aren't we? We're going to have to talk about the gospel a lot, aren't we? We're going to have to talk about grace a lot, aren't we? Because you know what? Your wife, if she's like my wife, she's going to call you out because you were talking a good game about like, she's probably going to watch this video. Hi, honey. She's going to talk about, you know, me talking about forgiving and being gracious. And she's going to be like, do you believe that? Because the other day you were not very gracious and you were not very forgiving. (laughs) To the degree that you believe that, you're going to be gracious and forgiving. Walk in step with the gospel, fool. Right? (laughs) Maybe not like that, but, you know, a little more gracious, but. Lastly, he saves us as a people, and here's the mission. It's all a mission, because the beauty of all of this is as we are a people, saved for his glory, a people for his glory, living for his glory, and realizing that we're saved for his glory, and as we're a people that are actually believing that it's for our good to be together, needing grace, relying on grace, applying grace to one another, following all the one another imperatives out of loving obedience because we know that the areas in which we failed, he succeeded. All of this is going to create a beauty that the world is looking for. And this is mission. He saves us as a people to make him known. He brings you into a community to make him known. He wants you to love one another to make him known. You're getting together, not just for you. It is for your good. It's definitely for your good, but that's not it. Like, it's not a cul-de-sac. It doesn't just end there. He brings you together so that he is made to look really, really ridiculously good-looking, like Zoolander says, right? Like, we're to make him known. We're to make his name famous. We're to so show him off in the way that we love and care for one another that people look in and say, what is that? I want some of what you got because I don't have it. He saves us as a people to make him known. And since his glory is what all humanity is lacking and needing, and we're all trying to find it, he sends us out as a community of glory bearers to make this beauty famous to our neighbors and to this world. And that's mission. And that, like if we're going to simplify mission, let's just call it that. He sends us out as a community of glory bearers to make his beauty famous to our neighbors and to the world. That's it. That's what mission is. Our community isn't a support group. Community isn't just for therapy. We might get all those things in community, but it's given a purpose to exist. It exists for God. It exists for the blessing of one another. It exists for the sake of the world. God forms Israel to live under his gracious rule and reign and to be a light for the nations and so that his salvation would reach the end of the earth. Look it up. It's there. It's actually in the Bible. Trust me. Isaiah 49 says this. This is this just sounds crazy. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I will make you as a light to the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. The way in which Israel was to be a light to the nation was by living under the loving care of Yahweh and then displaying that before the watching nations. They were to love him and others so much that the nations would be drawn to God. And that's what it means to be light. 
It's so they can see what God is like through his people by the power of his spirit. I mean, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you hear what he just said? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light to the world. You are a city set on a hill. Not that we will be, but that's who we are. That's our identity. You are those things. And where Israel failed to be a light to the world, and they did fail, Jesus comes in and says, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Israel failed. All the blessings and promises pronounced to the faithful remnant, they all come to me. I'm the only faithful remnant. I'm the light of the world. And yet he says here in Matthew, you're the light of the world. How can that be? Because Jesus was what Israel failed to be. And now since we are in union with Jesus... And he is in us through his spirit. We now have the light of life that the world is groping around looking for. Jesus Christ, God's promised rescuer and ruler, lived our life, died our death, and rose again in triumphant vindication as the first fruits of a new creation to bring forgiven sinners, you and I, under his gracious reign. If we believe that, we will be mission to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for keeping my voice one last night. You're good. You're just kind. You're very merciful. Uh, Lord, we, um, we want to confess, Father, that These are hard words to bear. On the one hand, our flesh is really struggling right now. And yet on the other hand, I just feel like our spirit is rejoicing. And it's really tough. It's hard to know what to do. But Lord, where we struggle, we just rely and lean on the beauty that though we failed, your son Israel's promised rescuer and ruler came to earth. He lived my life, our life. He died my death, our death. And then he rose from the dead in triumphant vindication. Thank you so much for your gospel. May it empower us and strengthen us. May we speak it to one another. May we believe it. And Lord, let the struggles and challenges of community demonstrate how deeply the gospel's been massaged in our heart. Let's not run from it. Let's see that as just 
your great grace towards us that if we struggle with all of the things that we talked about, forgiveness and mercy and grace and when to give up our own schedules and submit to one another, Lord, if we struggle with those things, I just pray that you would use that as an opportunity for us to apply grace to one another because we need it. We always need it. We'll always need it. We stand by grace and we leave by grace and we're motivated by grace. And so, Lord, help us to love one another with grace. Thanks for these last few days. I pray, I just, I want to pray just a blessing on Cornerstone. Lord, um, I can't tell you how encouraged I've been. Lord, you know that I've been thanking you these last few days. I've been amazed. Lord, um, we're recalled in these one another passages to be hospitable to one another. Lord, I've felt and sensed their hospitality and just their love and their appreciation, Lord, uh, to come out each night to struggle and grapple through hard words, we know produces a soft people because, Lord, the fact is soft words always produce a hard people. And you've just given them a, such a love for you that they're willing to come out and work this stuff through, God. And uh, for that, I want to say thank you and I want to pray that, um, that as they unpack this together as a community, even tonight and just through uh, the next several days, weeks, months, and years, that you would keep your hand upon Cornerstone that you would strengthen the leaders of this church, that you would strengthen the people as the community, that they would see themselves being shaped and changed by your gospel and so transformed that their life begins to look like this poured out people we're talking about who can't wait to get together and be with your people. Lord, I, I just ask that you would work a work in this church that would be uh, such a powerful city set on a hill that Simi Valley, Los Angeles, Moore Park, all the surrounding cities would be so radically affected by the work that you're doing here that, God, we'd be able to brag about it through eternity. Thank you for your grace in this family. In Christ's name, amen.